Hi everyone, Boris here. Sorry for the quick interruption, but I have to tell you about some exciting new job openings that are added to the LogTechies job board. Have you heard of the LogTechies job board? LogTechies is the first hand-curated job board for the field of logistics technology. That's where I post the coolest LogTech jobs at those companies that I currently find the most interesting. Brand new to the board is Bex Technologies from Stuttgart, Germany. Bex is building a logistics platform for the construction industry that helps companies coordinate deliveries to construction sites. I've had CEO and co-founder Leonard Paul on the podcast before, and I know they're going places. Right now, they're hiring for a number of exciting roles, including a CFO, COO, and a head of logistics. Alaiko from Munich, Germany is another new addition to the LogTechies job board. Alaiko offers seamless e-commerce fulfillment for fast-rising online shops and e-commerce brands. The company raised $30 million in a Series A round earlier this year and is now on an ambitious growth trajectory. They are looking to fill a number of sales roles, for example, for junior as well as for seasoned professionals. You should definitely take a look at Alaiko's openings. Aside from Bex Technologies and Alaiko, you will also find exciting roles from TradeLink, Noise Technologies, FanRide, Sender and others. Please have a look and follow the board so you can stay updated on when new companies and jobs get added. You find the LogTechies job board at LogTechies.com. L-O-G-T-E-C-H-I-E-S.com. LogTechies.com. All right, and now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm your host, Boris Felgendreyer, and today I invited two prominent journalists back onto the show who cover the exciting fields of logistics, supply chain, log tech, and e-commerce. Emma Cosgrove writes about logistics with a focus on e-commerce for Business Insider, and Eric Johnson is senior editor for technology at the Journal of Commerce, where he leads coverage and analysis of technology's impact on global logistics and trade. I wanted to know what stories from the recent weeks and months they thought were the most interesting and deserve to be discussed here in more detail. So we ended up diving into the impact that the economic downturn is having on the LogTech startup ecosystem, the appointment of Amazon executive Dave Clark to the role of CEO at Flexport, and we also talk quite a bit about how journalists like Emma and Eric go about their jobs covering the industry, and what you, the audience, can do to show up on their radar and get a chance of getting coverage. So there's some real actionable advice here as well that I hope you will find useful. Before we get started, a quick thanks to our supporters Grey Orange. Grey Orange automates warehouse operations through a combination of AI software and autonomous mobile robots. Grey Orange systems are in place at some very prominent companies such as IKEA or the Danish household goods and furniture retailer Jysk. If you're looking to get your warehouse and fulfillment operations to the next level with the help of autonomous robots and automation, you should definitely have Grey Orange on your list. Check them out at greyorange.com. All right, and now let's move on to the show with Emma Cosgrove and Eric Johnson. Enjoy. Hello, Emma. Hello, Eric. Welcome to the Logistics Tribe. Thanks for being on the program. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to be back, Boris. Thanks uh, for having me back. You're right. You're back. Both of you have been on the show before. So yeah, indeed. Welcome back. Few people have been on the podcast twice. So what a great honor for you to be on the show again. <laughs> Fantastic. And even better that you're making it work because we just figured out that we're calling in from three different continents. Emma is in Manhattan. Eric is currently traveling in India, calling in from Delhi. And I'm calling in from the undisclosed location somewhere in the boonies from Germany. So we've we've got it all covered. <laughs> Fantastic. Like I said in my, in my short introduction, just, just prior to when we started, I want to talk to you today about a couple of interesting stories that you guys have come across from the world of logistics supply chain and particular lock tech because that's your forte that those are your areas so I'm super curious to hear what we can discuss today in terms of the stories that you find appealing and interesting or maybe undervalued but before we get started I'd like to ask you about something different a different angle which is I would love to hear more and learn more about how you guys who've been in the business and writing about logistics and lock tech space and e-commerce for quite a while How do you go about writing stories? How do you come up with ideas? How do you research? How do you tap people for interviews? Do you talk to startup founders directly? Do you have your pool of people that you pool? Do you talk to agencies that are in between? All of that stuff. Let's start with you, maybe, Eric. You've been around the block a few times. You've seen it all <laughs> from you know, press releases that say, say nothing and go nowhere to real juicy stories that you've dug up. Fill us in on how your daily work as a journalist in that space looks like nowadays. Yeah, Boris, good question. We, uh, you know, part of part of you don't often get asked about how your 
how you sort of like structure your day and how you do your job as a journalist. So I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. And hopefully this is helpful to everyone out there. I think so. I think this should be insightful. I think a lot of people are just in the dark on how this works and how this whole thing works. I think there's a lot of people in the audience who would love to get their stories into the news, into, into, the, into the press, and they don't know how to do it. Maybe they have great stories, but not, don't know how to make them come to life. So anything you can share that makes life easier for them and for you <laughs> would be helpful. Yeah, I, I, I would agree, actually. I've, I've been asked this a little bit more than usual over the last few months, and I, I guess there is some curiosity about how this all works. Um, I would say of all the things you mentioned, it's sort of an all of the above scenario, right? Like I think as someone who's uh, in, who's been writing about uh, logistics or supply chain or technology or some combination of those for almost 20 years now, uh, there's times where the news is a little slower in coming. And then there's times like the last two years where it's literally like make it stop. I need to sleep mm -hmm. tonight. Um, but that said, you know, you have to be as a journalist, you have to be attuned to all the different channels uh, of story ideas um, that are out there because you don't want to miss the one that ends up being something that is really meaningful to you and your audience just because it's not the normal way that you sort of generate stories. So I think ideally the stories generate from having conversation with a wide range of your sources, both new, old, uh, ones that your colleagues may turn you on to, ones that someone you know may have turned you on to, and a story germinates that sort of catches a trend that you're seeing across all those conversations, right? That's mm -hmm. probably like the purest form of what we do um, in terms of like trade publication journalism. Mm -hmm. um, not all stories develop that way. Some are via press release, Sometimes it's an agency uh, that I know really well. They know how I work. I know how they, who their clients are. And they tell me, hey, Eric, I know you cover this a lot. Uh, I have an interesting angle that one of my clients is working on. Right? So that's a, that's a very strong way to get in front of me and get my attention and tick a box that me that's meaningful for me. To me is the agency knows what's important to me and my audience. And the the founder of the company trusts the agency to sort of like be that that conduit. A lot of founders just reach out directly to me. Like we're in a obviously we're in a world where you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, WhatsApp, SMS, text, email, through the website. And I mean there's a million different ways, right? So there's the the layers in between getting in touch with me are not just like finding my phone number. It's you can you can get in touch with me a million ways. And, and in tech, that's often a way that I learn about new companies, learn about trends, is a ton of DM conversations on Twitter, a ton of mm -hmm. per, uh, messages on LinkedIn. So it's really mm -hmm. like everything, all of the above. I would say the one thing to not do is just walk in and say with really kind of tired language about transformation and digitization and whatever mm -hmm. word of the day is and say you're an AI and ML and say my company is doing all of these things and more for the biggest companies in the world. It's like, well, okay, I've, I've never heard of you. So how do you, how are you doing all of these amazing things? If, if, right. If I've never even heard the name before. Right. So think, you know, see how I write, see who my audience is, understand that and then work with me and realize it's a process you're not going to call. We're not going to talk today and have a, you know, a, a cover story in the JOC tomorrow. It's just not how it works. So it's, yeah. it's a process for me to get to know them too. Yeah, and just back to that story around agencies versus direct contact. Is there? There's no preference I, I sense from you. I mean, it's it's, no, it's no, both ways work for you. There, there's there's founders who are terrible at explaining themselves to me, and would be uh -huh. better suited to have someone be a, like that layer in between to, to package it uh, up yeah mm -hmm. yeah and then there's founders who are amazing and tell me all sorts of interesting things about their company about the industry um and then you know on the flip side there's amazing agencies that totally get this industry inside and out uh and they're they're not going to waste my time and then there's ones that just message me every single day to talk to their client I had one, sorry, I'm, I, I'm not letting you jump in here, but I'm I literally I'm had one, I had one company's agency message me 30 straight working days. And finally I said, 
and I didn't think they were that applicable to me, what I cover. Mm -hmm. So I finally said, Hey, let's have a briefing. And literally they got back to me like an hour later and said, you know, I think actually our client doesn't think they're, that we're the right audience. You're the right audience for them. It's like, well, <laughs> you probably could have determined that 29 emails ago, but thanks for your time. So, yeah, I mean, just, it's just a little bit of basic research. You don't have to like dig deep to understand how I work and who the audience of the JOC is. Just do a little basic research. You'll have a general idea about like what, whether something's going to be interesting to me or not. Right. So, yeah. Do you see any difference between working with LogTech startup founders versus the traditional logistics that you also cover? Is there different in approach? Is it different generations or no difference at all? Uh, the LogTech founders, I actually wrote a Substack on this a while back. LogTech founders tend to be a little more savvy about how important the importance of creating buzz uh, early on in their progression as, as they build their company. You know, a forwarder, small forwarder, mid-sized forwarder in the, somewhere in a suburb of the U.S., probably not thinking about guerrilla marketing the same way that a you know VC-backed company that has to grow by a certain mm -hmm. amount in a certain period of time does. So it's just a little bit more innate. I'm not sure which which is ultimately better, right? Like you can burn an audience out by over-marketing yourself. Um, sure. But it's probably better to over-market yourself than to under-market yourself. So. I mean, I'm quite sure which is better for me personally. Let me jump in because mm -hmm. yes, please. <laughs> is a simpler process usually most of the time um it is there are fewer barriers to entry fewer people need to sign off it takes a lot less time to get what i need to write a story whereas working with a massive multinational corporation it, they just move slower um, i mean mm -hmm. that will be a surprise to absolutely no one but the ones I think sometimes that I get frustration from big companies um, because I maybe don't uh, feature their new efforts as much. And a lot of it is because they are not really willing to give sharp analysis. They're not really willing to compare to competitors. They're, they're just very polished and corporate and that's their prerogative. I'm not judging them for that, but it does make the coverage less interesting and it makes the stories more difficult to turn around uh, at the pace that I need to turn them if that makes sense. That actually nicely dovetails with the experience that I've had with interviewing people for my podcast, which is I quite enjoy talking to startup founders because there, there is a certain sense of, I don't want to call it naivete, but like some openness, some, some freshness, some, they're not as polished, they're more open, they're, they're, they're willing to just talk openly. And it takes a while until they mature and sort of a few things get taken off the table and they surround themselves with more corporate communications and all of a sudden stuff becomes a lot slicker and a lot more a lot more polished and a lot more sort of regulated, I feel. Like it's also easier when you don't have a stock price to worry about. <laughs> correct, correct. That's right. Yeah, so some of my conversations, the, the, the freshest and most inspiring conversations have been with startup founders that are in a stage where they're talking very, very freely without being, being hindered and held back by a team of folks in the background. So those, those are refreshing times. And um, anything else to add? I mean, you've heard what Eric said. Is there anything that strikes you as odd or would you agree with what he said, the way he works or anything, any way that you work that departs from how Eric approaches things? Um, I think we have a lot in common. I'll point out that um, I, so I would call the Journal of Commerce trade publication and that it's B2B industry facing. Um, yeah. I used to work for a trade publication as well called Supply Chain Dive. That was two years ago. Um, and I worked there for almost three years in my that's my five years um covering supply chain but now mm -hmm. i work for business insider which is a more mainstream publication with a more generalist investor audience um especially behind the paywall which is where i write most of the time and um that means that i am looking for i we're not a paper the term in the industry is like a paper of record like i don't cover every big you know a big 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 deal i might skip it entirely because i can't add anything special it will be covered to death everywhere um a lot of times mm -hmm. i pop on that big news which hurts my soul a little bit but i've learned to really love it because it means that i'm focusing on the stories that i can deliver unique value to that are mine that are based on um independent reporting and and that literally no one else will have so that could be analysis or it could be 
straight old fashioned scoop. And that is my focus. I think that's an important distinction from mainstream press. If that's what you're looking for, even like Bloomberg or the times, even they're doing more logistics coverage and trade press in that. I don't, uh, my job is to bring to the surface. What is most interesting? What's the most uh, like a really great story, a really great human story in the logistics industry is always something I'm looking for a scoop that is going to um, raise the bar of our publication and, and make you aware of it. That's my focus. And so there are tons of really interesting technologies, interesting initiatives um, out there in logistics that I pass on every day because I just don't feel like I can give them that that unique quality that's going to drive you to Business Insider when you have when Eric is going to cover a, a funding round or a merger like perfectly well with with lovely, wonderful analysis. So um, that's always my goal. And also because I work in a mainstream publication, I'll add that my inbox is a crime scene. It is <laughs> a prime day in, in the United States. I don't I don't know if that's a global initiative, but it is Amazon Prime Week or whatever. And oh, yeah. I, yeah, it's global. Yeah is about prime products in the beauty category just because my you know email extension is at insider.com it means i get a flood of general garbage um so mm -hmm. it is hard to reach me um this i know i'm working on it <laughs> but it just means that reaching me off channel off of email is usually a, a better way to go about it and then i'll also say that um and i'm sure eric feels this way too i'm excited to speak to people who can speak to me about more than one thing and are willing to do so it's just efficient work so if you are currently a startup founder but you used to work at dhl let's talk about dhl and your mm -hmm. startup um, that's, that, you know, the first thing I do when someone introduces himself to me is I look at their background and see, you know, what do they know? So, um, Eric gave an example of when a PR company, um, he said, okay, let's do a briefing and they didn't have the client. Like they didn't have the client committed to talking to him. That happens all the time. <laughs> Um, wow. And it also means that like before I even talk to a company, I'm often going to be like, hey, can we talk about this, this and this to make the conversation more efficient? And if some of that needs to be um, on background or off the record, just because I'm constantly looking to intake as much about this industry as I possibly can, even if it's not for a story today, it might be for a story six weeks from now. So I'd say like bring your whole person to your pitch, whether it's personal or three through a PR company, PR people can explain your background and that you're willing to talk about it. Um, I think that would be a big plus. That's what I'm looking for. I'd like to co-sign the whole like time efficiency thing. I think part of the description is we want to talk to as many people as possible, but there's eight hours in the day. Let's be honest, 10, 11 hours in the day. We have to write also. We're also just like every other company in the world. We have too many meetings every day. You know, there's other things in our life that sometimes crop up. So that time efficiency is a big thing. And I think the issue that people tend to have with journalism with a big J, like it, as an industry, is we don't get it perfectly right. We, you know, we're biased, we're this, that, and the other thing. I will tell you almost every single issue that arises from every legitimate publication that I've been a part of or that I know other people who've been a part of is just time. It's time crunch. The time between getting the information, synthesizing it, making sense of it, writing it a way that means something to your audience, and then publishing it is shrink, shrinks every single day. And so it's really a, a time issue. So I would say that's the big thing is be mindful of time. Be mindful of like if you're making an announcement, give the reporter as much time as possible to like get some brain power about it. Because if you drop it an hour before it goes out and you want coverage, I'm probably booked into eight other things that day, right? And I'll, I'll get to it maybe a week later, right? So it's not a slight on that news and it doesn't mean that I hate that company. It's just everybody is insanely busy right now. So makes sense. Awesome. That was a nice little detour. I, I kind of sort of squeezed that in before the, the actual conversation around stories. Let's start with those. Eric, maybe um, you start off. Give us one story that you feel was either, you know, so important for the industry that needs to be double clicked on and discussed and explored further in this conversation or something maybe that was undervalued, flew under the radar and deserves a second look, so to speak. Where do you want to start? What's, a, what's one of the stories that you want to surface? I think uh, probably the one, I mean, I, I'm not going to win a Pulitzer for this, I don't think. <laughs> probably, like, probably a zero chance of it. But I think it's one that's super important right now is sort of taking stock of the temperature of the funding environment 
and what how that's translating into techno into the logistics technology world. Yes, um, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it's like every single conversation I have these days circles back to that issue at some point. Maybe it starts with it. Maybe it's the majority of it, or maybe it's like the last question I get to. But everybody is has an opinion on this right now, and I sort of think it's a bit and rightly so. It sort of mirrors how confusing and cross-directional the signals in the greater economy are right now like you can go you can go on any news information feed or wherever you get your information you can find two diametrically opposed viewpoints of which way the economy is right now like we're either you know i i tweeted earlier today some it feels to some people like we're five minutes away from like lord of the flies territory uh and other people are like this is weird there's 1.9 uh, job openings for every person who's looking for a job and like freight volumes are high and every software company tells us that they're, I, Emma probably can agree, tells us they're growing 250% year on year. And so there's these really weird signals that we, our brains are not processing properly. Um, I think that's the same thing inside of the funding uh, environment too, is you have, we're still seeing lots of deals go down and some of them pretty big where sometimes we're seeing companies lay off people proactively reactively sometimes those two things happen at the same time emma wrote she she broke the story about stored laying off people like three weeks after they raised 200 or 120 in in some form of debt and equity right so that's a like i rightly so whatever their motivations and i think they probably had decent motivations for what they're doing but that's those are confusing signals to the market, much less the employees, right? So they are, but I think Eric, what what we're uh, unfortunately we're entering a, a stage where nuance is required, which is not really something that uh, social media platforms and even media organizations are great at. Humans, I think, are really not great at nuance. Um, and my headline on that sword story was pitched as you know. However, many months after raising so much money, stored laid off this many people. And and part of the reason for that was because the employees were told internally that this is this money is going to get us through whatever's coming next. Um, mm. But I think and and that is the human side of that is heartbreaking and, and really disappointing for the people that I talked to within that company. Um, and for anyone who's tiring of layoff stories, please remember that when there's always a person, you're talking to a person who just got laid off. If that were you, you would want it to, to you would want it to get press. It's 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 relatable, I would hope. But um, I also think that funding rounds are coming with directives. Um, and I can't say this specifically about stored. I don't have that confirmed. Um, but I'm just saying that out there, I'm hearing that. Funders uh, are taking a closer look, as I'm sure Eric can confirm, but also they're, um, they have stipulations. They want to see uh, either cost cuts or, or they want um, less spending in certain areas. So it, 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 though layoffs and funding seem um, mismatched, I think that uh, that's going to be a more common story uh, for as we go through the next couple quarters. And I'll also add that there's a lag in the data here. You never know how long these rounds have been in the works um, sure. when they're being announced. And so even though it's July, I don't think we'll really understand what the funding environment is until the fall, um, just yeah. based on how long deals can take. No, totally right. There, There is a lag, and um, especially in the period, sort of the quarter right after things turned after the Ukraine, you know, invasion of Ukraine, there was definitely a sense that companies were announcing during that quarter to show sort of a sign of strength, right? Like, oh, even as the market's tanking, we've gotten this round when it was actually signed, you know, the funds transferred in January, right? But they're announcing it in April. Um, So yeah, that lag is going to play itself out, I think, over the next few months. And I think everybody is really is very cognizant that like cost, you have to be more efficient with the money that you've been you're getting. But the the, sto- the thing that that I wrote well after Emma's story was that there's still big rounds being signed, and, th- and some of them are happening post March um, mm-hmm. because there's still a lot of cash out there, right? And that cash is not as easy to attain, but it still needs to be deployed. It can't, you know, if the venture capital firms own investors. Uh, are not pulling that cash off the table. They want to see it invested. They don't want to see it in a bank account earning. Well, now it might be earning 1.5% instead of 
0.5%, but it's not enough, right? Like they, they invested in that model or that vehicle for a particular reason. So yeah, I think I wrote something about, you know, flight to quality. I've had a couple VCs reach out after that came out and said, that's exactly the way we're looking at it is like, fewer bets, more, maybe even doubling up on a company that we feel really strongly about that we already invested in. So it's definitely a big change from 21. That's for sure. Massive change. Yeah. Also, I'm, I'm, I'm happy by the way, because I'm writing less funding stories because those were just getting really out of hand. So sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I am too. Um, the the other thing I just wanted to add is it's important to look at where if there are layoffs, um, to look at where they're coming from. Um, my colleagues at Business Insider did a great story about how a lot of these layoffs are hitting um, what now seem like bloated recruiting teams. Um, whereas in 2021, recruiters could have their pick. You know, there will not be as much hiring this year, and you're simply not going to keep your 15 person recruiting team in a year where you're probably going to end up flat. Um, so. Mm -hmm digging into those layoffs. I mean, if you're, if it's core folks, if it's, if it's uh, sales, you know, those are layoffs are an indicator, but um, yeah, they require nuance. I, I'll add one other thing about roles. Um, I had someone fairly early on in this, when things flipped, they said the layoffs are not going to come from engineers, right? Engineers are the ones that can have their generally good ones, especially are have their pick of jobs in almost any market. There's still a lot of cash, right? So it's going to be those other roles, those roles that are deemed a little bit more replaceable because an engineer is, is not as easy to do. Is easily yeah. Software engineers are the last ones to go. I mean, unless the whole thing goes down, then of course there's no hope there. And I think we, we are going to see more startups not just make it, right? I mean, it was a long period of time where you could just get funding and, and, and sort of survive for several years without any good ideas, without any market traction sort of hide in between the pack, I think those times are over. I think this is really sort of a, a reckoning. And like you guys mentioned, where, you know, it's it's sort of investing in quality and it's sort of a weeding out of, of the stuff that really, really works and has proven itself and other stuff will just go under. I mean, I think it's... But what do you guys make of the idea or the notion that the lock tech space will be the safe haven and sort of the space inside of tech that's spared from some of the worst bloodshed because... If anything, we've learned in the last two years, three years, is that there's such a big demand for supply chain tech and lock tech, you know, such chaos, and there's just so many analog manual stuff still in deployment that the technology investments have to be made. So is that a reasonable thing? Can you identify with that position or is that wishful thinking? that the luck tech space will be the only safe space, so to speak. I was going to call it naive, but wishful thinking might be mm -hmm. correct. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think if, if, you, if that statement, if you feel that statement in your heart, then uh, you are maybe in denial about there being bad log tech. There's plenty mm -hmm. of bad, useless log tech out there. <laughs> um, I, just because it's, it's targeting a sector that still needs, desperately needs modernization, doesn't mean it's any good. So um, there's also, I mean... There, I'm coming across a few companies as I try and figure out, you know, which sinking ships to cover um, that don't have, the, you know, this is no secret, but they don't have the tech they said they had. You know, a lot of startups sort of start out with less tech than they intend to have in the end, and then they develop it as they go. Um, that isn't going to work <laughs> in this in this scenario. So, yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that funding will keep coming into the sector in a reasonable, rational way, which I'm still seeing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think we're safe from the implosions that everyone is seeing. Um, the the cliffs are less steep, I would say, because the consumer tech side is much more susceptible to these massive drops in revenue um, based on sort of trends and markets. So um, I think log tech is less likely, you know, <laughs> if your revenue was tiny, it's, it's probably still tiny, um, but it's not going to disappear entirely. Um, but yeah, in terms of the lifetime of the startup, if it's, if it's bad tech, it's bad tech. Yeah, I've also talked to a lot of log tech startups who, over their evolution, eventually reached a point where they had to hire people from the industry. So sort of people that worked in freight forwarding for a long time, th that expertise is needed. I wonder if some folks that have been in the traditional uh, logistics industry, have worked there for many, many years, are sort of spooked now and less prone, less willing to jump into a startup situation because of 
the inherent risks that are rising now and it's getting more and more difficult for these young startups that do need logistics personnel and expertise to grow um, I wonder if that's if that's a thing do you see that happening Eric what do you think I don't think it's any harder now than it was before uh, and I say that because the if the market it's this is not a tech only implosion kind of situation it's you know there's signs across the market that we may be entering whatever you want to call it a recession or a soft softening of demand inflation is high potentially freight volumes are coming down in the fourth quarter so the forwarder the 20-year vet at forwarder may not have the, their pick of jobs as they would in like a flush market. And so if there's an opportunity to join a startup that sounds interesting and is paying pretty decently and will really value your expertise because you're not you're you're literally the only one who's done this on their team. I still think there's going to be there's going to be people in in you know veterans who want a different type of challenge. Um, and I don't think that necessarily fundamentally changes just because the market is a little bit different. But I don't know. It's, I think it's very much case by case. I it would be interesting to see like data about like how much matriculation there is from you know incumbent type roles into startups there must have been a lot over the last two years just based on all the cash and all the hiring and how much of that will go back to incumbents um, how much of that will stay with those those veterans kind of moving from one startup to another to another seeing a lot of that honestly actually the last few months more than bouncing back to a you know, kind of an incumbent existing type of uh, role. Yeah, I talk yeah, so to recruiters a fair bit about this for us, actually, because um, I'm always I'm always out there looking for a crazy signing bonus that I can write about, and no one's been willing to go on the record yet. <laughs> enough, they don't want to share their crazy signing bonuses. Um, but that was something I was hearing from recruiters a lot last year was that folks at incumbents are looking for a lifestyle change. Um, they <laughs> want that fast moving, uh, less red tape sort of environment. Conveniently, that was coupled with some of the best deals you know, that I think the folks in this industry are going to see for a while. Um, I think if you're an individual in logistics that's inclined to work for a startup, which is not everyone by any means, um, then you're looking at the deal in front of you. And that deal is probably, if you're not an engineer, not going to be as good today as it was a year ago. And you might also be focused more on direct compensation rather than equity at right now. At least I would hope that that's what you're focused on. Um, if you're <laughs> a new opportunity. Uh, but I think folks who are inclined are still going to do that because there is still just a huge black and white difference between working at a massive forwarder and working at a startup with less than 100 people. It's just a very different life. Yeah. Forrest, can I, can I circle back um, on the whether log tech is a little bit insulated from... Mm -hmm. So I may be a little... I may disagree a little bit with Emma. I don't think we drastically disagree, but I think, I think there's a couple things that work in the log tech industry's favor right now. One of them is that the the like things in crypto and fintech and consumer tech and health tech, very few companies in log tech were getting those crazy, crazy thousand time multiple valuations and funding rounds, right? So there is a there's a, a smaller hill to uh, descend off of than in some of those other industries that were wildly overvalued. Some of them even B2B. It wasn't just all consumer stuff, right? So that's one thing mm -hmm. that I think right now, it was a struggle last year. Why is no log tech company, uh, you know, a $100 billion valuation, right? It's probably a positive now because, yeah, no log tech was even close to that. So there's far, there's less far to fall. The second thing mm -hmm. is a lot of the companies that I think have a, have a bit of a tough road ahead of them are suppliers to other software companies. So if you are selling your technology to another set of less than five-year-old software companies that are struggling right now with the funding environment and have seen their valuation slash and are not going to IPO like they thought they were and uh, are having to cut staff, that hurts your business. If you are a supplier of log tech software to a forwarder or a shipper that is moving physical goods and those goods... The volumes are this, virtually the same this year as they were last year. You have a bit of continuity in terms of like the stability of that market. So those would be the only two things. Now, what Emma said is, right, the tide is going to go out and there's going to be a bunch of companies that sort of rode the crest. There's also a lot of like duplicate companies. There were five, six, seven versions of the same type of idea that came up over the last year or two. 
um, not all of those are going to keep going. And if, you know, last year the thought was, oh, well, all of these are going to keep going and then they'll consolidate or get picked off. And some of them are now not going to make it. Right. So yeah. that, that's, those, that would be the only things I'd add about. Yeah. That consolidation is really interesting too, just because I'm really eager to see. Um, I'm assuming there are going to be a lot of aqua hires coming up in the next couple of years, um, just as the tide goes out. And where is the value in these startups that aren't going to make it is fascinating. Like, are, are the people worth an acquisition? Is the tech worth an acquisition? Um, even a very, very, you know, fire sale one. I love seeing that stuff. It's fascinating. Yeah, it'll be interesting. All right, let's transition to another story, another angle. Emma, maybe this time from your end, what what else have you been watching, been fascinated by lately in terms of stories? Yeah, I selfishly brought one of my own, but um, it was with friends. Uh, the Dave Clark of it all. Dave Clark, um, former consumer CEO of Amazon, is going to mm -hmm. be the CEO of Flexport. I think that will be news to no one listening to this podcast, but the implications and ramifications of that are fascinating to me on both sides. Um, had a story uh, looking at Dave's, um, Dave, as if I know him, um, <laughs> as a, looking at Dave's record at Amazon. Um, he is a notorious, he's a builder. He likes to build big and build fast. Um, that's his, the story of, of his tenure at Amazon. And, and he's responsible for the sort of physical shape of that company today, which is considerable and undeniable um heading into uh, a company that doesn't have physical assets as of yet um is a fascinating transition and just um sort of temperamentally he's known as quite quite demanding quite hard-nosed um but but very smart so uh, i'm so excited to see i love just like this is a great thing for me personally <laughs> to be able to <laughs> get this story to tell for months and years ahead. Um, and then back at Amazon as well, um, Doug Harrington is his replacement, who is perhaps a polar opposite. Um, he's a retailer uh, at heart, cares a lot about product and merchandising um, and customer retention and share of wallet, which was not uh, Dave Clark's focus based on the insiders that myself and my colleagues have talked to. So Both sides of that um, big shift are going to be fascinating to watch. But I'm also really eager to hear um, both of your thoughts on on the Dave Clark move to Flexport because I talk to about to Amazon folks about it all the time, but I haven't talked to that many industry folks about it. I think it's a killer move. Um, I was surprised though. Uh, I thought that that Ryan Peterson would stick on for for, for much longer. And then the first question that popped into my head around this was, well, obviously it's a great validation for Flexport one, but my, the question I immediately had was, well, is this a story of a natural progression that most founders go through? They're great founders, they're great at getting something off the ground, but later as the organization becomes bigger, you need a different set of expertise that really you know, you find in, in the founders, right? So you, you have to bring on somebody else on board that can scale a large organization that has the skills like a guy from Amazon. Or is there is there more to the story? Is there some bigger things going on behind the scenes, some problems maybe at Flexport that prompted the whole thing and sort of expedited it? So it's it's hard to say from the outside. I mean, I don't have any insights that have better insights into what's going on in the company, but but Eric, maybe, maybe you have. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny, Emma. I hadn't really thought of it until you were talking about, you know, your sort of uh, excitement about covering this as a story. But I think I may be the only reporter who knows, maybe uh, Alex at Forbes at this point does too, but I feel like I may be the only reporter who like knows Flexport 10 times more better than I know Amazon, right? <laughs> yeah, that's Or, right. You know, like I think Dave Clark has been a, a very public figure in business circles for a very long time. And he's been studied from afar and I, I've never had a conversation with him. I, unlike you, I haven't sort of done an analysis of his like leadership style and building style. The flip side is completely true. Like I've written so much about Flexport. They're sort of in some ways like my white whale. So it's yes, totally interesting from a neutral observer perspective to watch this very public successful person join this company that's on the vanguard of like what this tech log tech movement has been over the past 10 years. I have no idea how it's going to work out. I have some inclination, but definitely not a consensus in my head about the reasons why it happened. I, you know, I've talked to a bunch of different people that have floated different ideas about why it is that they turned to him, why he may have accepted it. 
and what Ryan's motivation behind it is. I can't say that any of them are more true than what Ryan and Dave have said about it themselves. Um, I think this is, I'm very much a wait and see type of person. Like I just, I don't have a very good crystal ball. So just don't know how it's going to play out. It seems like a great and interesting match. Um, but beyond that, um, and I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll write a million things about this as it progresses, obviously, because people are so interested in it. And it's, yeah, well, it is all. important. It's very important, right? In our little uh, nick of the world. Yeah, we're going to find out how important it is. But I think there's an interesting point to be made here about late stage log tech startups, too. Um, the timeline for IPO is not looking the way it was a year ago. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, rethinking going on out there. Um, what do we need to show? Like what progress do we need to make? What is our priority now? Um, I think a lot of folks were headed toward that, not a lot, a handful of folks who were headed toward that that finish line um, and it, it's delayed now. So gotta make big moves in the meantime. I'm not saying this is what the, the Dave Clark uh, move is related to. Um, specifically, I don't have that confirmed information at all. But um, I think there are a lot of startups out there that have had to really rethink their story for the next year or two um, based on the, the state of markets right now. Yeah. And it's only been announced, right? So the, the transition will happen sometime in, in September, I believe, right? So it's it's going to be a transition time and Ryan is not completely going to disappear, but he's he's moving to the board. So he's going to s still be around. And I think at some point in the announcement, he, he said that he's he's going to work there forever until he dies or whatever. He's, he's always going to be on board. So if I'm just paraphrasing, but um, I mean, he's, he's built a, a phenomenal thing. When was the last time that you built a new forwarding company from scratch, particularly with a, with a tech backbone? Quite the feed. I think what the story that will be written and one thing that we picked up on in our coverage of it was... Both of them said in statements, because neither of them wanted to talk to me, um, <laughs> but they said in statements that within five years, they expected Flexport to be the, you know, the biggest name in supply chain or something to that effect. So to me, that was, you know, they've put themselves on the clock with a specific timeline. And what does that mean? Right. What does that mean? Because what you just said, Boris, is so true. Like if you if everyone sort of wiped their memory clean of what Flexport was to this point. And you just said, holy cow, in nine years, they've become whatever they are, the 15th biggest forwarder in the, um, from Asia to, Asia to the US, which is no small feat. It's an incredible accomplishment. But if uh, the goal was to build something that had never been built before, that does not exist in the market, that story is yet to be written, right? And so, you know, you could see Dave Clark joining as Ryan thinking he's the one to get them to that point, right? Um, because I, I don't think Ryan ever intended to build a, like a direct competitor of Cunanago. And I don't think his investors invested in him and continue to invest in him and the company to create an analog to Cunanago, right? That's just not what they set out to do. They set out to build something a lot bigger and a lot more all-encompassing. Yeah, but I think a lot of this talk is also this this bravado that comes along with the startup founder that sort of wants to rule the world. I mean, look how frequented the market is and always has been. And yes, they've made great progress, but they're still just a small fish among many, many small fish and among many, many big fish, right? So it's not like even in a five-year time scale, this company is going to dominate the market or, or catch up to the, the largest players in the market. But maybe I'm too pessimistic and I shouldn't be a startup founder. <laughs> I think being good at Twitter is often misconstrued for ego. <laughs> we, we kept honing in too much or we, we may be talking too much about Ryan Peterson. But one thing he, I'm, I'm super fascinated about is, is the way he positioned himself as the person that is to be quoted and talked to and asked when anything related to supply chain. Remember that, that time when he was in this 60-minute helicopter hovering over Long Beach and commenting on what's going on there. Some people find it inspiring and sort of impressed. Other people find it obnoxious, <laughs> anything in between. But the way he's gotten himself on the map as the person to, to cite and to tweet and to like his posts on, on stuff related to logistics supplies. And that's quite fascinating. I've, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who's accomplished that to be sort of the, the quasi spokesperson for the industry. We probably have mixed feelings about that, Emma. How do you feel about it? I do um, have mixed feelings about it. I think it's a yeah. lot less complicated than people think. Journalists are on Twitter. If mm -hmm. you want to get their attention, be smart about something they need to know about on Twitter. Yeah. Um, 
uh, a minority of journalists are also on LinkedIn. If you're super smart on like if I'm starting to cover a subject I've never covered before, it's very often that I will put search terms in social media sites to see who's saying things that seem smart. And if you're not saying anything publicly, but yeah. you're sitting there thinking, I'm really smart. Why is no one asking me? Mm-hmm. We don't know how to find you. <laughs> There's no directory. So you got to be visible to be visible. That's all I'll say. And visible he is for sure. Yeah. And no, I, I, there's so many CEOs and forwarding companies in logistics that do know their stuff, but they're just invisible. Like you said, like who is good at Twitter? Who is good on LinkedIn of sharing their thoughts and being being open and perceived as a as a thought leader? I don't think there's that many. There's not many good case examples. So the bar was pretty low, maybe for him. So and he have kind of pulled it over it. Yeah, and also say that like, if, if you want a little bit of insight into a newsroom, you know, there's me. I'm a I'm a logistics reporter. I cover logistics all the time. But we also have a team of 20 business reporters who, who grab something new every day, who are doing the quicker hit, shorter stories that are less in depth and require less analysis. Um, and CNN has a breaking news desk. You know, the Wall Street Journal has a breaking news desk that will occasionally pick up a, an M&A deal in logistics when it's after hours or whatever. So you can imagine if you are young and <laughs> you're a young journalist who covers a different industry every single day, who are you going to be able to find at short notice? Ryan Peterson. He's just findable. He's easy. Yeah. He's, he's easy to get. Like. <laughs> It's it's not rocket science. <laughs> well, he's easy to find, but not easy to get. Look, Eric, you you no, didn't get him for the no, interview. No, I haven't so. gotten him either. I haven't gotten him either. Not That's in a while. Fine. Eric, anything else to add in your perspective on the way that Ryan Peterson has become the quasi spokesperson for supply chain logistics because of his omnipresence on Twitter? What's what's he doing well? What anything to comment on? What um what he should be admired for? I I think he's you know two of the two rules of the two rules of social media are. Um, be consistent, voluminous, and have a strong opinion. And he's all three of those things on on social, right? So he's like, you're going to see his stuff one way or another if you're interested in this industry. Or like Emma said, uh, I mean, there was a point last year where he was on 60 Minutes and this, that, and the other. And I was kind of like, you know, as a reporter, I was kind of like, if I'm a general news reporter, I might try to find someone else to speak to get a different point of view about this. Uh, but what he has done, I think, and what the marketing team at Flexport in general have done is they've essentially, to Emma's point, they've essentially made Flexport the Kleenex of logistics. And by that, I mean, you call it, at least in the States, we call, you know, a tissue to blow your nose, Kleenex. We don't call it, I don't call it a nose tissue or whatever it actually is called. I call it a Kleenex. And to the person who's not in the industry, they are the reference point for logistics now because of how prominent they've been out in the market, right? Mm-hmm. Along with maybe a couple others, but they're the ones who are they're the ones who are sort of the label on top of the big weird logistics box. And that, by the way, may be true from a U.S. perspective, but I don't think that is equally true for Europe. I don't that's think fair. that maybe that's due to the fact that fewer people in Europe use Twitter and are not as as hooked to that channel as as maybe in the U.S. But well, it's it's still a, a journalist platform also in, in Europe, but not so much it's as also it would about be in, in the US. For us, when we say global logistics, we mean Asia to US. <laughs> That's right. Sorry to say right. the quiet part out loud. Well, I don't. I don't. Russia to I Europe. Mean, I mean global logistics. I, Asia you to do, Europe. Eric. Yes, I know. But like when CNN about. does it, they mean getting of our course. stuff. Of course. Yeah. yeah. My <laughs> stuff. Our stuff. <laughs> okay, then. So maybe to close the circle to to the question or the topic we had at the very beginning, any advice for folks out there, log tech startup founders, as well as people in more established roles, executive roles in, in logistics, in the way you present yourself to the outside world in social media in particular to catch the attention and tell your story and show up on the radar of journalists like you, or maybe even the, the business and mainstream press. Any last bits of advice? I'll go first. I guess this is advice. It's really just an ask. Um, humility, humanity, loosen up, talk more freely. Like one of the things uh, we are talking way too much about Ryan, but Ryan's also not afraid to be wrong. He is uh, sometimes wrong very publicly. And he will often say, I was wrong about this. Somebody corrected me. That is a, is a very difficult thing to do. I think he gets dunked on a lot. And, um, it, uh, the fear of being wrong, the fear of saying something that you're not authorized to say, I think 
often gets in the way of people sharing their actual thoughts about the actual industry. Um, so if you can find ways within your bounds and without losing your job to get around that, and and if you have insights into the market to actually put them somewhere public where someone like me might be able to find them, um, then I am 1,000 times more likely to find them <laughs> if they're findable. Um, and, and also on the startup side, I just say, I am always looking for humility if you tell me that you're going to do something that's like clearly unrealistic and impossible, I don't think you're ambitious. I think you're deluded. <laughs> so like be realistic, be, have some humility. Tell me your human story. Just talk to me like I'm another person. Fantastic. Eric, anything to add? Any advice from your end? Yeah. I mean, I think the first step is, is like, how do you get noticed? I think Boris is kind of what you were um, initially asking about is what, what does it take to stand out from the crowd? Part of what Emma said, you can you can accomplish before you even get on the phone or on a zoom with us is like the tone of how you approach um the more the less form letter it looks like the less buzzwords you use the fewer sorry fewer buzzwords you use jeez um uh i'm supposed to be a writer um the, uh, you know the more you are talking about hey um i know you cover this and i know and and i and i am hearing from our customer base that this particular issue is a problem and I think we address it, right? That's the way to get someone like Emma's or my attention rather than we have a platform that's transformational for the entire industry, right? So that that's the way. And and also like Emma said, email is probably the least effective way. You're way more I'm I'm way more attuned to like when people reach out directly to me on LinkedIn and Twitter um, or WhatsApp than I am on email, just a fact. What's I don't have the volume of emails I'm sure that Emma does, but it's enough to make me like not want to use that as the as a generation of leads. And then once you're on the phone, um, just like I said before, realize that it's a relationship. You have to share a lot if you, you know, you need to give a lot to get a lot from a relationship. So don't expect me to write a glowing piece about you if you don't want to talk about real things real like what your actual competitors are your revenue i know a lot of people are not comfortable talking about that when you are let's talk right like it's an ongoing thing and you have to you have to have trust in me that i'm gonna i'm gonna be responsible with the information you give me and tell me you can tell me a bunch of stuff off the record and i'm never gonna violate that and it's probably gonna build our relationship pretty strong uh, if, if, if that's the type of relationship we have. So. Awesome. We leave links to your profiles, to both of your profiles in the show notes. And let's see how, if people honor your advice. And please, please report back to us. <laughs> we also leave links, of course, to, your, to the articles that were mentioned today and quoted. So, um, and if people haven't gotten the subscription to the Journal of Commerce or to Business Insider, they should definitely do that. And they should also definitely check out Eric's Substack, right? That you offer for free still. Still for free? Or he's already charging for it? No, it's still for free. No, it's uh, $1,000 per uh, newsletter now. <laughs> yeah, it, no, should be. it should be. Free. It's <laughs> totally free. Uh, EricJohnson.substack.com. Yeah, we'll leave a link in the show notes. Emma, Eric, thank you very much for being on the program today. It's very exciting. Um, I, I have a feeling that you, you guys have to come back. I think there's a lot more stories uh, that we had on the radar that we wanted to cover that we didn't get to cover, but we, we covered the stories we did in a decent depth. So thank you very much for that. Appreciate it a lot. Hope you'll be back for more. Thanks again. Until next time. Thanks, Boris. Appreciate it. All right. That was the Logistics Tribe podcast episode with Emma Cosgrove and Eric Johnson. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If so, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Felgendreher. Until next time.